thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through His Word. Well, this morning we're going to finish our study through the book of Acts, and we've been seeing this journey that Paul has been taking to Rome, and the reason that he has to go to Rome is he's appealed to go before Caesar to stand trial and get Caesar to give some verdict uh, on that trial. And last week we saw that during this journey that Paul takes to Rome, he has to go by ship, and uh, the journey does not go well. The ship was uh, encountering a life-threatening storm, and the crew tries everything they can do to try to, you know, stay afloat uh, in this storm and they throw all this stuff overboard and and finally they just give up all hope that anything is going to happen. They think that they're just going to die. And it's at that moment that an angel of the Lord comes to Paul and gives Paul comfort and and promises Paul that not only will Paul survive, but that everybody on this ship are going to survive. And they end up all making safely to an island, just like God said they would. Uh, and that's where we ended last week in chapter 27 of Acts, where they're now safely on this island. And so we're going to pick up in the final chapter of Acts, uh, chapter 28. And uh, as we go through this final chapter, we're going to see seven lessons that we can learn from what we see here. There's going to be different things happening, and we're going to just look at uh, things that we can take uh, home ourselves uh, from what we see from Paul and the people that he encounters. So Acts chapter 28, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. Now we'll take you back to our map and, you know, the island that God directs this ship to is called Malta. And when you look at the map and you see this red line in this journey, you kind of looks like, hey, that was purposeful. You know, look, I mean, they're just right off of, uh, you know, Rome there. It's a straight shot. You know, it looks like they, they purposely went to this island. It would make sense for a ship to do that. But we know from last chapter that that wasn't the case at all. As they were in this storm, we're told they couldn't see the sun. We couldn't see the moon. Uh, they couldn't see the stars for days. And we noted that they don't have GPS. They don't have compasses back then. The only way they navigate is by seeing these things. And so in the midst of this storm, they're clueless of where they are. They're just getting tossed to and fro as we were told and so this ship is just going all over the place they landed on this island that they don't know where it is right when they get there they could have thought you know maybe we're down towards Egypt I mean they could have gone somewhere completely different from where they were ultimately seeking to go but yet they find themselves on this island of Malta only 65 miles off the coast of Sicily right on target right on course for Paul to get to Rome Now, the reason I point this out is because it brings up something important for us to note. Last week in the storm, we noted that God is the protector of us in the storm. But here we also see that God is the one who directs us in the storm. He's the director in the storm. God is able to get us where we need to be, no matter how big the storms are in our life. You see, the storm wasn't ultimately the thing that was directing this ship. God was. These people on the ship weren't ultimately at the mercy of the storm. They were at the mercy of God. 
And this is so important to remember, especially when we're in a storm, when we're in difficult circumstances, because oftentimes we feel like, oh, I'm at the mercy of this difficulty, of this trial, of this storm in my life. And we think, man, this storm has taken me off course of where God wants me to be. But we need to remember, God's bigger than our difficulties, bigger than our trials, bigger than our storms. And He's the one who can direct us even in the midst of it all. He is in charge, not the storm. And so this is the first lesson that we learn here from Acts chapter 28. God is in control of the storms of our lives and can direct us through the storm to where He wants us to be. So the next time you're in a storm, or maybe you're in one right now, let this be a good reminder to you. God not only protects you, which is a wonderful encouragement, but He also can direct you through the storm to where He has you. So now they're on this island of Malta, and let's see what happens as they're there. Verse 2 says this, And the natives showed an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome, because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he laid them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Once again, I want you to note, we see God's favor upon Paul in the midst of the storm that he was in. Notice we're told the natives showed us unusual kindness. Seems like the natives there weren't usually very kind, but they showed an unusual kindness to these strangers, to these guys who crashed on their island, and they you know make a fire for them, they welcome them. And this is interesting because we see throughout this journey, as Paul's been going to Rome, unusual kindness from people that normally wouldn't be kind. The Roman commander, who normally would not allow Paul to go and be with people who loved him in order to give him uh, meet his needs. That wasn't normal. He had unusual kindness. On this journey, he met people with unusual kindness. Here he gets to this destination. And what are the natives? They have unusual kindness for Paul. You know, God is so good at doing this. Throughout the difficulties and trials that we go through, the Lord often brings people to demonstrate unusual kindness, where you're surprised of, wow, that person actually did that for me in the midst of this circumstance or the midst of this hardship. And, you know, it's an encouraging thing. I'm sure you have experienced, I know that I've experienced it a lot. I know as a missionary, you know, you have all sorts of different needs that you have in life. And and for me, one of those needs as a missionary was, you know, financial security, not knowing what would come from next day to next. And, you know, and God just showing unusual kindness of people's generosity to give. And, you know, in times where you're you know, physically down or, or emotionally down and someone just come in and, and encouraging you and being there for you or visiting you or whatever it is, just that unusual kindness that God brings to you at the moment that you need it. And he often uses people to do it. Uh, and so what a great thing that we have from the Lord who recognizes our needs like he did with Paul and brings this to him. Now, I want you to notice what we see Paul doing as he first gets to this island. Verse 3, we're told, Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. Now, remember what we just went through last week in verse tw- or chapter 27. Fourteen days they were in this horrible storm, and they didn't eat until the final day. They ate a little bit of food. The ship is totally destroyed. they got to swim to shore. I am pretty confident Paul's tired. I'm pretty confident he finally gets to this island and would love to just sit back, relax, kick up his feet, and just take a nap after this long, stretched-out storm. But notice what we see him doing. We're told that he's gathering sticks, ultimately, to lay them on the fire so that people can stay warm. Now, remember in last chapter, we were told that there were 276 people on board this ship. 
And Paul could have said, you know what, guys? Remember it was me who encouraged all you, you weren't going to die. Remember it was my God, not your captain or sailors who actually got you safely to this island. You know what? Why don't you go pick up some sticks and make a fire for me? Why don't you serve me? I mean, it's really because of me and my God that you're here anyway. I mean, Paul could have tried to use his influence and what God had done for his own gain, for his own service, but yet we see in the midst of a time where I'm sure he's tired and there's plenty of other people who could have been gathering sticks, yet Paul's the man who's out there serving the people. You know, Paul, we see through his life, was a servant. And we see that Paul reflects his master, Jesus Christ, who was also the servant. You know, the Gospel of Mark is one of my favorite Gospels because it focuses on Jesus as the servant. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I mean, if anyone deserved to be served, if anyone could have come to this earth and said, I'm not serving anyone, you're serving me, it was Jesus because he's the one who deserves to be served. But yet he said, you know what? I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you. I came to give my life for you. And if you go through the Gospels, you always see them, uh, the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus kept having to show them, you know what, you have it backwards. My kingdom and the world's kingdom operate differently. In my kingdom, if you want to be great, you need to be the servant of all. Oh, in the kingdom of the world, yeah, if you want to be great, get serve people to serve you. But in my kingdom, if you want to be great, serve others. And so here we see a great example from the life of Paul of someone who was a servant And he demonstrated that even in the midst of the storm and the tired life that he had. And this is the second lesson we learn from this chapter is always look to serve others instead of looking to be served by others. You know, that's our selfish tendency. You know, it's easy to say, you know, who can serve me? Who can do stuff for me? You know, how can people take care of my needs? You know, we kind of live in a society where we're growing more and more with that of, you know, how can other people take care of me and give me and give me instead of, you know, what can I do? to serve others and looking for those opportunities as we see here with Paul. Well, as Paul is serving, as he's doing a godly thing, as he's living for the Lord, something bad happens to him. We're told a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on Paul's hand. You know, this is something important to remember because oftentimes we think, you know, when if I'm serving the Lord, everything's going to go great. If I'm serving the Lord, nothing bad's going to happen. If I'm doing what God has for me, you know, life will be a bed of roses and everything will be wonderful. I'll never go through trials. And that's not biblical and that's not true, I'm sure, to your experience either as you follow Jesus. When you serve the Lord, it doesn't mean trials aren't going to come. You know, that's just something that happens as we're doing it. It's not like, oh, I must be out of God's will because I'm serving him and something bad has happened. In the midst of Paul's service, he gets bit by a viper. But notice how he responds, because oftentimes, especially when we're serving the Lord and a trial comes, our response isn't usually very biblical. But notice what Paul does in verse 5, we're told, but he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So here's this viper comes out of the sticks that Paul's grabbing, fastens onto his hand, and he just shakes it off. You know, that's his response, you know, to this trial, this response to this difficulty. Notice he didn't scream, why God? I can't take it anymore. I mean, two weeks on this storm and this ship and finally we're here. Finally, we're on this island and I go to serve people and now I'm bit by the snake. I mean, what is going on? I mean, that wasn't his response. He didn't shout at the people around him. You lazy people, if you would have been the one getting sticks for me, this wouldn't have happened to me. I mean, he didn't blame. He didn't blame God. He didn't blame others. He didn't get all upset. Notice he just shakes it off. 
And I think that's a great way for us to respond to the trials that we face. To shake off the trial and continue to serve the Lord. You know, when I played football, we used to do a drill that our coach liked to call crush time. And, you know, it was you get two guys and you put them 10 yards apart. He blew the whistle. You ran at each other as hard as you could and hit each other as hard as you could. And the goal was for one person to knock the other person on their butt. Uh, and he was kind of like, we're going to separate the men from the boys here. And so I remember one time I had to go up, you know, you, you kind of oftentimes would look at who's in the line and try to weave in and pick the smaller guys. But I, I was up against the biggest guy on the team and the whistle gets blown. I run my hardest and we hit and boom, I get launched back on my butt. And you you know, my coach screams out, McGoldrick, shake it off and get back up and do it again. And I'm thinking, well, at least do it again with someone else. And he grabs the big guy and makes me do it again. And he blows the whistle and we go. And this time, I actually got hit back even farther. So, um, you know, but he, he, he congratulates me. And I'm thinking, you know, why are you congratulating me? And he, he gathers us together. Uh, and this was his kind of time to, to share with us. And he said, you know what? There's always going to be guys bigger who will knock you down. But... The big part of football is just shaking off the hit and getting back into the play. You know, and I think about that in the Christian life. We're always going to have things that knock us down. There's always going to be things that are difficult. But how are we going to respond? Are we going to shake it off and get back to serving the Lord? Or are we going to allow that to shake us? And we say, you know what? Forget it. It's not worth it. I'm not doing this anymore because I'm tired of getting knocked down. And this is a third lesson that we learn here from this chapter. When we go through trials... Don't be shaken by them. Instead, shake them off and continue serving the Lord. That should be our heart. Lord, I don't want anything to stop me from serving you, from pursuing you, from showing love to you. Regardless of what it is, help me not to be shaken by it to the point where I no longer serve you. So this viper... He bites Paul's hand. Now remember, Paul is getting wood for a fire that I'm sure plenty of people are sitting around and they're watching this happen. And notice the response of the natives who were unusually kind to Paul. Their unusual kindness maybe is going to be gone and their their true nature is going to come out now. But um, verse 4 says this, So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one one another, No doubt this man is a murderer whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, notice the first response of these natives. Here's Paul, he's doing this service, and boom, the viper, a poisonous snake, you know, latches onto Paul's hand, and their response is, man, no doubt this guy's a murderer. Even though he escaped this storm on the sea, you know what? Karma, that's kind of their mindset. He's getting what he deserves. He's got to be bad. He's got to be sinful. And now, you know, he's getting it because this snake has bitten him. You know, these natives just conclude ultimately because of some horrible sin like murder, Paul is getting what he deserves. And this is a common conclusion that people have when they see something bad happen to others, or even sometimes when they see something bad in their own life, it's, oh, this bad thing must be because of some bad or horrible sin in that person's life. Oh, they're homeless because they're a drug addict, and oh, they're this because of this sin. Or We we oftentimes just come to conclusions and jump to conclusions of, it must be some horrible sin that put that person in that situation, but you know what? That's not always the case. 
Now, let me say, there are bad things that happen because of sin. There's consequences to sin in your life, but not everything that we go through is because of some sin that we've done. Not every trial and difficulty and bad situation that we face is because of something that we've done to cause it. You know, the book of Job reveals this so well. Job is going through horrible stuff. And if you read the book of Job, you realize it's nothing because of him. He's a righteous guy. He lives for the Lord. He does what's godly. Satan comes to God and says, well, yeah, you give him all this stuff. What do you expect? Of course, he's going to live for you. Let me go and take care of him. And I'll show you. He'll curse you to your face. And so God says, fine, you can do it, but you can't kill him. So, you know, Satan kills his family. He does all these horrible things. Job's sitting with boils all over his body. He still doesn't curse God. But his friends, these great counselors, these great friends with friends like them who needs enemies, they come to him and they say, Job, it must be because you're in sin. Surely all this stuff in your life has to be because you're a sinful guy. I mean, just confess, what horrible sin have you been doing that caused all these things? And yet we find out he didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't him at all. And God rebukes these friends of Job for coming to that conclusion that surely Job must have done some horrible sin to have these things happen in his life. You see, when someone goes through a trial or a hardship, don't jump to the assumption that they're a sinner and then start judging them. Because in the end of the day, that's not what they need from us. You know, we're not the ones who are going to be their judge anyway. When you see people going through difficulty, they need us to help and respond with grace, not point out, oh, it's probably because you're some horrible, wicked sinner that this is taking place in your life. So the fourth lesson we learn from this chapter is when people are going through trials, don't assume they're in sin and judge them. Instead, be gracious and help them. So first, these natives, they, they jump to the wrong conclusion. Surely Paul is a horrible murderer, and that's why this has happened, and they're just waiting. Oh, this guy's going to drop down dead. He probably doesn't even know how bad this venom is. You know, he's going to swell up. He's going to be dead, and they're watching, and they're waiting, and time goes by, a little more time goes by, and then all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait a second. This guy's still doing well. He's fine. The venom hasn't hurt him. And now all of a sudden, notice they go from, oh, he must be a murderer deserving of judgment to, wow, this guy must be a god. Look at the extremes of these natives. They go from, here's this horrible sinner to here is this god. And I think this brings up a very important thing that we need to remember about the extreme views of people. You know, Paul was not someone who was new to this. If you remember back in Acts chapter 24, the people in Lystra started off thinking that Paul was a god. They wanted to worship him. And he's like, don't do that. I'm not a god. I'm a man. And then they go from that to stoning him, thinking they're going to kill him. Uh, so, you know, I'm sure maybe he liked this one better. At first they thought he was horrible and then he was a god. But at the end of the day, he recognizes, you know what? People are so fickle. You know, they go from one extreme to the next. And I bring this up because so often, especially when you're doing ministry towards people, we do it for approval. We do it for, oh, we want them to think so highly of us. But, you know, when you're doing it for the approval of people, understand, man, people's opinion of you is going to go up and down and up and down. And life for you is going to be like this horrible roller coaster of like, they like me, they don't. You know, it's that little, you know, like flower where you pull up, likes me, doesn't, likes me, doesn't. But it's this constant change and, and realize there's only one person that we should really be concerned with their opinion. And that's God's. You know, everyone else is really kind of irrelevant. Is God happy with me? And if he is, that's all that matters. And if I'm pleasing him, regardless of what everyone else thinks, that, that's what's important. Uh, and just realize, you know, you're going to have people who think you're great one day and not so much the next. Uh, but that's okay, as long as you're living for the Lord and doing what he has called you to do. 
Well, let's see what happens next on this island of Malta. Verse 7, it says this, In that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went to him and prayed, and he laid his hand on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They were honored. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So we hear this man, Publius, who's a leading citizen on the island. He says, hey, Paul, I want to invite you to stay with me. Now, this is probably selfish motives because Paul's now a god, according to them, because he didn't die. And so, hey, why don't you come over to my house, Paul? This would be great. And as Paul goes there, he finds out this guy's father is sick. And as Paul does so often in different places, he prays for this man and this guy gets healed. Word of that spreads real quick around the island and they start bringing all the sick people to Paul and he's praying for them and everybody is getting healed. Now, I want you to note something very interesting. It's that Malta wasn't where the ship was intending to go. Malta wasn't where Paul was intending to go. But God wanted to do a work in Malta through Paul and so God brought Paul to Malta. As we already noted, God directs us through storms. And sometimes we end up in a place where we're thinking, what are we doing here? This is way off course. This isn't where I should be. You know, God, why am I here with these people? I want to be there with those people. And sometimes we miss the reality that God says, no, no, no. I've put this little detour in here because I want you right here with these people to minister to them. Because God wanted to do a work of healing among these people there in Malta. And, you know, Paul didn't know about that. His his thought was, we're getting to Rome. And yet God says, no. I have a plan for you here. I want to do something for with you here. You know, my first year in Scotland, our church met in the city center of Glasgow, and we planned for this big summer outreach, and we invited two churches from California to come out, and it was going to be our, our big, huge thing in the first, you know, summer that we were there. And the city council, they decide, you know what, we will give you permission to do stuff here in the city center, and we start passing out flyers and inviting people to stuff, and someone calls in and complains to the city uh, council of, hey, there's a Christian event going on here. And they say, oh, if you're going to complain about it. So two weeks before it happens, they cancel it. You know what? You no longer have permission to do this. Now, these two teams of people have already bought their flights, their comments. We're like, all right, God, what are we going to do? So we start praying, where are you going to direct us here? And so God directs us to this big community center on the west side of the city. We are right in the center of it. And so we go there and we have great fruit from that. We have a lot of young people. The university was right there. Uh, and right after that, the Lord just makes clear to me, you know what? This is where I want you to be. This is where I want the church service to move to here at this community center. We started meeting there for years. But, you know, through this storm of like, Lord, what's going to happen? You know, we're doing this big outreach and it's all canceled. And now, you know, where are we going to go? And God says, no, I got to place for you. Not only was it, I want to do something on the west side for this outreach, but I actually want to move your location over here as well. Uh, and you know, you just, sometimes the Lord just does things in storms that you don't expect. Uh, and you know, it's just great to see what he does and just be open and, uh, just be led by him. Well, now the journey of Paul is going to continue towards Rome. Let's see what happens next. Verse 11. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island, and landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium, 
And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to uh, Putulio or Putoli. Anybody who speaks you know, Italian will know that better. Where we found brethren, where we uh, invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went towards Rome, and from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three ends. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guards, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Notice here where we, we start off by saying, after three months, we sailed. You know, sometimes we just read through that and keep going, but notice that God gave Paul three more months on that island. And I think that's important to note because he just went through this horrible draining storm in his life. And now, you know, before he has to make this long journey to Rome and go through this whole process of standing trial, he gets three months to be on that island. And we're not told all that he does. I'm sure he did ministry there, but I'm sure it was also a time of relaxation a bit, a time to kind of collect himself. And, you know, I love that about God of, you know, he, he's he's good at balancing things. Like, you know, he allows the storm, but then, you know, come the sunshine for a bit and then another storm. But there, there's always that balance of he knows what we need. He knows what we can handle. And I like the fact that he gives Paul this three-month break before continuing this journey. And so after three months go by, the Roman command, he finds an Alexandrian ship. Remember, his ship got totaled, so he needs a new one. Uh, and they sail north, and they stop at these three different cities heading towards Rome. And then they find they get off the ship and start walking, and they come to Appi Forum. Now, I have been to Rome three times as I lived in Europe. I, I love Rome. And one of the times I decided to make the journey to the Appi Forum because it's 50 miles uh, outside of the city. And I decided, you know what? Because it's in here biblically, you know, this, let's just do it. And uh, there was no gelato out there. So that was the biggest reason I didn't want to go. But um, this is one of the oldest roads in existence today. Uh, it dates back to the day of Paul. As you can see, it's cobblestone roads, but if you're actually there, you can see chariot marks that are, you know, in the uh, stone because it's, you know, old and it's, uh, it's pretty cool to go out there. But the more important reason we went out there is because of the significant event that happens here, uh, in verse 15. Notice what we're told. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appy Forum and Three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, I think it's important for you to know that this is the first time that Paul's going to see these Roman believers. Unless they had traveled or had been where he has been, he's never been to Rome yet. He's written the book of Romans. He sent that to them. He said in the book of Romans, I long to see you. I want to come see you. But yet, he has not been there. This is his first time to be in Rome. And so I'm sure he's not expecting uh, people to come out and see him because he doesn't really know them. He hasn't been there. He hasn't built those relationships with these people. But notice what happens. These believers travel 50 miles, most likely by foot, to come and meet Paul, which was a pretty big journey. Well, think about that. If you started walking from here and you walked all the way down to Galveston Beach, that's about 42 miles, okay? How many of you would walk that journey just to greet someone? And how would you feel if someone walked that journey to greet you? You know, this is something that as Paul has these believers come all this way, walk all that way to greet him, 
it's something that really blesses him. And, and I think there's something else significant about this. It was a custom in Rome to come all the way out to the Appy Forum only for one reason, and that was to greet the emperor and to walk him all the way back into the city. It was something special to do for someone that you said, oh, you're so great, you're the emperor. And yet these believers say, you know what, Paul? We're doing this for you. We've walked all this way out for you, and we want to greet you here. And notice what happened because of it. We're told, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. You know, this should be one of our desires as believers. We should want to do things that would cause people ultimately to thank God and to take courage because of what we've done for them. And you know what? Usually that means going out of your way. Going out of your way to bless someone. And it, it brings this, you know, people to that place where they take courage and they're, they're uh, blessed and they thank God because of it. You know, I'm sure all of us like it when someone goes out of their way for us. You go out of their way. And that's something that you remember so much. I remember when we left Scotland and people were sharing about their memories of us, you know, Rarely was it, oh, the Bible teaching was so great or this. And, you know, some things as a pastor you're kind of wanting to hear. But it was always like, oh, I remember that time that, you know, when I was sick and you went out of your way to visit me. Or I remember when you, it was always kind of like, when you went out of your way to do something to bless me is, is the thing that I hold on to and remember. And those are the things that are kind of those highlights for us as we see people willing to do that for us. And it brings that thankfulness to God and that encouragement in our lives. And this is something that I think you know, is so important for us to do. And this is the fifth lesson we have from this chapter. We should go out of our way to bless others in such a way that they would thank God and take courage. So Paul now, he's finally at Rome and the centurion, his job is done. He gives Paul over to the prisoner of the captain of the guards. Uh, and now Paul has uh, to dwell with this soldier who guards him. So he's kind of just chained with this soldier. And in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about what this is like. And now imagine, you know, you've made this huge journey. And the reason that you've made the journey is because you're appealing to Caesar, but you have done nothing wrong. You're not guilty of anything. You have to do this because the Jews wanted to kill you. And now you get there and you're kind of treated like a criminal. You're chained to a soldier. You can see how someone in Paul's situation might get upset about that reality, but he has some very godly wisdom in Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 as he speaks about this time being chained to this man, the soldier. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has been come evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Notice Paul didn't look at this situation as he's chained to this Roman soldier and say, oh, how horrible, now I can't preach the gospel. He had a different perspective. <laughs> I'm chained to this guy, he can't go anywhere, I'm going to preach the gospel to him, and he's going to have to listen because he's stuck with me for eight or ten hours, just chained to me. I mean, his perspective was very different than I think a lot of us and our perspective might have been in that type of situation. But notice the results. He says, the whole palace guard heard the gospel, and the believers became more confident to share the gospel. You know, Paul's circumstances were very difficult. He was chained to a guard 24-7. I mean, it was just uncomfortable. It wouldn't have been nice to have to sleep like that. It wouldn't have been nice to live like that. 
But yet, he used that difficult circumstance to reach the lost and to encourage other believers. And this is the sixth challenge that we learn from this chapter. No matter how difficult our circumstances are, we should always look to reach the lost and encourage other believers. You know, I think unfortunately when we go through difficult circumstances, we often just focus on how hard the circumstance is, how difficult it makes our life, and we're, we're not focused on how can we be useful to God? How can we reach people for God? How can we reach believers? How can we reach unbelievers? It's just this pity party of, oh God, this is such a horrible circumstance and I'm so bound to not be able to do anything. Instead of, Lord, in the midst of this, who can I reach? In the midst of this, how can I be used? In the midst of this, what do you want to teach me? You know, as we already mentioned, don't let difficult circumstances shake you from serving the Lord. Instead, shake them off and continue pursuing what God has you doing. So Paul is chained to the Roman soldier, sharing the gospel with them. And, and now he really wants to share with the group that he always wants to share with, which are Jews. And he hasn't had very good reception from Jews. Pretty much all the Jews that he shares with, you know, especially the large groups, do bad things to him. But now he's in Rome, and he wants to reach the Jews in Rome. Let's see what happens. Verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with chains." Then they said to him, We neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who have come reported or spoken any evil of you, but we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken of against everywhere. So Paul has had nothing but trouble from Jews, and he comes here and he says, I want to meet with them. I want to share with them. And he gets this uh, platform, this opportunity, and he speaks to them, and he wants them ultimately to know why he has come to stand trial before Caesar. And it's not for any other reason but for the hope of Israel. It's for the hope of Israel that I'm bound in chains. You see, Paul had a huge love for the Jewish nation, a great desire to reach them. And notice how these Jewish people respond. It says, hey, we never received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who have come reported or spoken any evil of you, but we desire to hear about this sect, speaking of Christianity, from you. So this is a good response. Hey, we haven't heard anything bad about you, Paul. Oh, really? Great. And you know what? We're interested in hearing about this Christianity that you follow. Uh, and so now Paul's going to get an opportunity from this curious group of Jews to share with them. Let's see what happens in verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So these Jews, they come to Paul, and notice that Paul does three things. He gets this opportunity to share with people who are interested in Christianity. First, we're told that Paul explained to them about Jesus from the Bible, from the Scriptures. You know, people need to have an understanding of who Jesus is from the Scriptures. 
Because there's a lot of weird and wacky views about Jesus that are floating around in the world today that don't have their foundation in the Bible and what the scriptures say. And so we need to communicate the truth. When I was in Scotland, that was one of the struggles there. It wasn't that you were talking to people who never heard about Jesus. It was the opposite. You were talking to people who had already rejected him because of something that they thought he stood for, which he didn't. Something that they thought Christianity stood for, which it truly didn't because of the, the junk and the hypocrisy that was there. And so one of my things I had to do was, I need to show you the true Jesus from the Bible, what it truly says about him and what he has done for you. And so that's always a great place to start. Second, Paul testified of the kingdom of God. The idea behind this word testified is giving a thorough witness, telling others of what Jesus has done for you. You know, I've already mentioned many times of the importance of sharing your testimony and communicating the gospel. And this is something I think is so important because you don't just want people to think you're just giving them factual information, but also as you share your testimony, they realize the Jesus that you're speaking about from the Bible has actually impacted your life personally, has actually changed you personally. This isn't just some intellectual exercise. This is something that transforms lives. And I am an example of the transformation that believe in Jesus can do. And so that's where that testimony becomes so much more powerful to take information and make it real and personal and communicate to that, uh, uh, to people through that. And so first Paul explains Jesus through the Bible. Second, he shares his testimony. And third, he persuaded them concerning Jesus. Paul uses persuasive arguments concerning Jesus. We're not given the persuasive arguments he uses, but there's plenty of evidence to back up who Jesus is, what Jesus did. You know, I love if you look at the fulfillment of prophecy, you know, I mean, there's so much evidence that backs up who Jesus is. And I think this is another important thing as we communicate with people, we want them to understand there's evidence. We can be persuasive in what we share because we don't have this blind leap of faith into some absurd thing. We have a concrete understanding, something that has proof, uh, that has something that we can uh, have evidence that backs it up. And we want to communicate and share that with people. So here we see the seventh lesson uh, from this chapter. When you get an opportunity to share with someone, make sure first you explain the Bible or Jesus in it. Share your testimony and persuade them with the evidence we have. And so Paul does that. Hey, I'm going to communicate Jesus through the Bible. I'm going to share my testimony. I'm going to share uh, persuasive things about Jesus. And verse 24 tells us the result of what happens. Okay, now that he's done this, how do the people respond? We're told, and some were persuaded, good, by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. Something important to remember is not everyone we share with is going to believe in Jesus. I mean, Paul, I'm pretty confident, is better than any of us ever will be at communicating the gospel, at communicating scripture, at communicating these things. And notice that even him, with all his experience and all his missionary journeys and all the things that he did, some believed, not all. Some were persuaded, not all. There were people that rejected Paul's message, that rejected Paul's testimony, that rejected ultimately Christ as Paul shared that. And I just bring that up. I've said this before because it is not our responsibility to convert people. It is not our responsibility to cause people to accept Christ. It's our responsibility to proclaim Christ. It's up to them to make that choice. We don't have any power over them as to whether or not they're going to receive or reject. That's not up to us. Our job is to go and preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and then we trust the Holy Spirit. We leave it with God. But 
I bring that up because sometimes we feel like we failed if people reject what we say. The only way you fail is if you don't proclaim the gospel. That's a failure because then you haven't done what you've been told. It's not a failure to proclaim it and have someone reject it because that's not up to you. All that's up to you, share the good news and let the Lord work and see what he'll do. And you'll have, just like you see Paul, some will believe, some won't. You're going to get rejected. There's going to be people who are going to say no. Let me just lay that out for you. But you know what? You're also going to get people who accept it. And that's one of the greatest things ever to share the gospel and see someone go from darkness to light, from eternity bound to hell to eternity bound to heaven. You know, so I encourage you, don't let rejection keep you from continuing to share the good news of Christ. So some believe, some don't. But now we're told that the Jews are going to depart from Paul for something that he says. And notice what he says in verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. So there's something that brings these Jews to a place where they say, all right, we don't want to hear from Paul anymore. And it's the same thing that Paul keeps sharing that they don't like to hear. And it says a word, but it's speaking like of not just one word, but he, he shares a prophecy from Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah is speaking about the Jews, the nation of Israel, and what they're going to do in response to the Messiah. Essentially, he's saying, if you reject Jesus, you can hear but never understand. You can see but never perceive. Your heart will be hard. Your ears will be closed. Your eyes shut because you really don't want to turn to God and be healed from your sins. And this is what Isaiah is throwing out there. And he's saying, you know what? And then I'm going to go to the Gentiles and they're going to be open. You guys are hardened. You guys are rejecting it. And the Gentiles are going to receive it. And they don't like it. You know, this message from Isaiah is just as true today as it was when he first said it. The main issue that Isaiah is getting to is people don't want to accept the gospel because they do not want to give up their sin. They don't want to let go of their sinful lifestyle. That's one of the biggest things. You know, I talk with people and they usually use this, well, oh, evolution has disproved the Bible or this or that. They always try to use like this intellectual thing. And you start talking with them about that. And then you get to the root of it, which is almost always, there's a sin in my life I don't want to get rid of. I mean, that's pretty much anyone I've ever talked to. I rarely have ever found someone who completely rejects Christianity from intellectual reasons. It's almost always comes back to sin. I want to hold on to sin. I'm not willing to give up this sin, this relationship, this or that. And that's why I don't want to accept the gospel. And it just comes back to that reality. You know, I read something interesting about how monkey trappers in North Africa trap uh, monkeys. And I found a little clip. Um, so they dig a hole a hole that's just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in. And at the bottom of the hole, they make it a little bit bigger and they wait for the monkey to watch. Uh, and they put, you know, things that they know the monkey will like to eat. And they just go wait behind a tree and the monkey's very curious. And this is what happens to the monkey. So he comes up and he sees the hole and he doesn't do anything because the video's not working. But, oh, now I skipped him. Come back to the monkey. All right. Let's try one more time. Here we go, monkey. 
There we go. So, as you can see, now watch. When he makes a fist, he can't get it back out. It's just big enough to fit his hand in, but when he grabs hold of it and he makes a fist, he can't get it out. And he's really easily caught because he's too stupid just to let go. He wants that so bad that he's trying everything he can to get his hand back out, but he won't let go, and so they just come and they catch him. And they do this with little jars. They do this with all sorts of things because they realize, you know what, they won't let go. And that's the reason they get caught. And I bring that up because I think in our own lives, you know, we grab hold of sin and we're not willing to let go. The one thing that we need is to let go of our sin and grab hold of Jesus to recognize it's only through Him that we're going to receive freedom. We need to come to Him. We need to repent of our sin. We need to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to turn from this. I'm going to leave this behind. I'm going to let go of it. But our problem so often is, I'm not willing to let it go. And because I'm not willing to let it go, that's why I'll ultimately stay bound to it. And that is what Isaiah was saying, that so many Jews were going to be like, and there's so many Jews and Gentiles today who are not willing to accept Christ. Why? Because they're willing, not willing to let go of the sin in their life. Well, now Luke ends the book of Acts in verses 30 and 31. Let's see what he has to say. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So Paul sent two years under house arrest, and this wasn't uncommon that it would take that long to see Caesar. There's only one guy, and so if you got in the line of, I want to see Caesar, and he has to be the one that oversees my trial, it's like, well, you're going to be waiting for a while. And so Paul had to wait two years to finally get uh, the opportunity to see uh, Caesar, but we're told that he did something in those two years. He didn't just waste it. He received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now you might be thinking, this is a horrible way to end a book. One of our main characters is left kind of under house arrest. We don't know what happens to him. You know, I don't really like the movies or especially the TV series. And you get to the end of the season and it's kind of this to be continued cliffhanger type thing. And you're like, I got to wait all the way till next year to find out what happens. And then you find out they don't even do another season. So you're just left with that. And that's kind of how people feel with acts of like, what happens? You know, what goes on after this? You know, does he go see Caesar? Does he get pardoned? You know, what transpires? Well, the book of Acts doesn't tell us, but there are other letters that Paul wrote, and there's church history that does reveal what happens to Paul, but I'm not going to tell you that until next week, so you're still going to have a cliffhanger and have to wait. But it does bring up an interesting question. Why did the Holy Spirit choose to end the book of Acts like he did? Well, there are commentators who say, well, there's a practical standpoint because most commentators believe Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he wrote to a man named Theophilus. Uh, they believe that he's writing to this powerful man as kind of like a defense. They believe that this man was an attorney for Paul. He's about to go stand before Caesar. I'm going to tell you all this stuff about the life of Jesus and all that the early church happened so that you can defend Paul. And so now it's all done because there's no more information because Paul hasn't yet stood before Caesar. And so that's why practically uh, it could stop this way. But I believe there's a more important reason that this Holy Spirit chose to end the book of Acts like this. It's because really... The book of Acts doesn't have an end. You know, it didn't, you know, end with Paul. It's not like, well, Paul's gone and now the Spirit of God stopped moving. You know, Paul's gone or the Apostle's gone and, and now the Spirit of God doesn't empower people anymore. It doesn't reach people anymore. No. God's Spirit is still moving today through the church in powerful ways. The book of Acts, the, the movement of the church of God is still live and active. And I think God, I don't want an end to this because there is no end to this because the church is still 
continuing and functioning and I'm still seeking to reach the world with the gospel. You know, the only reason the church ever started and continues to exist today is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. You know, as we look at these seven lessons that we learn from this chapter, we see that Jesus' life is an example of all of them. Jesus understood that the Father was in control of the storms of His life, directing Him where the Father wanted Him to be. Jesus always looked to serve others instead of Himself. Jesus didn't allow trials to shake Him. Instead, He shook them off and continued forward. Aren't we so grateful for that? When Jesus saw people going through trials, He was gracious and helpful. Even those who were going through trials because of their own sin, He was still forgiving and gracious and helpful to them. When Jesus was, went out of His way to bless people in such a way that they thanked God and took courage, no matter how difficult circumstances got for Jesus, He always looked to reach the lost and encourage those who believe in Him. And when Jesus got the opportunity to share with people, He explained from the Scriptures. He explained His own life to them and He persuaded them to believe in Him. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. Jesus is our example. He's also the reason we're here as Christians. And it's the first Sunday of the month and as we do on the first Sunday of the month, we're just going to finish taking time to remember Jesus, to remember His sacrifice for us through taking communion. This is an open communion, meaning if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have asked for His forgiveness, uh, you believe in Him, then we encourage you to partake with us. Uh, as the elements are passed around, I want you just to hold on to them. Uh, we will take them together. But if you've never made a decision for Christ, you've never asked His forgiveness for your uh, sins, then um, I would just ask that you let the elements pass by, uh, and I will come back up and we will take communion together. So as the worship team leads us in a song, the elements are going to be passed out. Just hold on to them. And I would encourage you to take some time to reflect upon your own unconfessed sin. Bring those to the Lord. Confess those. Get right with Him uh, before we do this.